was it bad? What was it like? Working with him, working with her. You'll hear all the tales you wish you knew. Every aspect of the theater too. Feel your love of Broadway anew. On backstage babble. Hi, this is Charles Kirsch, and welcome to Backstage Babble, a podcast interviewing professionals in the theater industry about themselves, their careers, and the people they've worked with along the way. Today, I am joined by the first person I knew I wanted to talk to when I started this podcast, a man who personifies Broadway, Leroy Reams. On Broadway, he has appeared in Applause, 42nd Street, The Producers, Beauty and the Beast, Lorelei, and more. He has also directed Carol Channing in Hello, Dolly, and played Dolly himself only a few years ago. He has also appeared in La Cajo Fall throughout the country and many times on screen, including in the film of Sweet Charity. He gave me three hours of wonderful stories, and today I am bringing you the first half, his career starting with Sweet Charity and through Hello, Dolly. Boy in Covington, Kentucky, Whenever there was music on, I would get up in the middle of the floor and start singing and dancing. And my mother read in the local newspaper that if you sign your child up for so many lessons at the local dance school, you would get a free pair of tap shoes and a promise that your child would be in the annual recital. And this school, they had a sign up front that said, tap toe, ballet, acrobat, baton, ballroom, voice, personality, and culture. So that's what the signs said. And the name of that school was the Jules Stein Dance School in Covington, Kentucky. Now, we were young kids, you know, like around six years old. And the teacher who taught us was not Jules Stein. It was one of his uh, student girls who taught the little kids. And indeed, I was in that recital and sang the Johnson Rag. And I've got a picture of that with a big white full sleeve blouse, black pants, and a big sash around my waist and a little black bow tie that hung down. And so after that recital, this is terrible, but that teacher hung himself. Really? Yes. So then, not to be deterred, there was another dance school that opened in Covington, Kentucky, called the Bob Ziegler School of Dance. So I went there, and he was was drafted. And so he started teaching his classes, and she saw me in the class, and she decided to put me with the older kids because she felt that I was good enough to do that. So she put me in the older group. And then she wanted me to do a, a, a solo in the recital, but we didn't have enough money to pay for solo lessons. And she said, it doesn't matter, I'll teach him for nothing. So I did a solo number and she told my mother, she said, Leroy's got it. He can make a living doing this. And that was the beginning. And I sang naturally. I had a singing voice. I learned to sing uh, properly later at the College Conservatory of Music, but I'm getting ahead of myself. So that's how I started out. And I tap danced, I did ballet, I did everything. And I would go around and perform in all the local talent shows and for all the local organizations where they would want entertainment. So uh, that's how I got my start. And then, of course, in school, I 
And uh, then in high school, I directed uh, and choreographed the variety shows at school. And after I graduated from Holmes High School in Covington, Kentucky, which was not easy for me, because everything was fine in school until I did tap dance in front of my sister, Marcella. She's 18, 16 months older than I. And I danced in her homeroom program in the auditorium. And from their point, I was bullied and taunted. And I had a terrible time in high school. But the girls protected me. And it didn't bother me because I was smart enough to know that it was only temporary that one day I would be graduating. And then I was going to go to the University of Cincinnati, which is across the river. The Ohio River separates Covington and Cincinnati. So, and I was a theater arts major at the University of Cincinnati. And then I got a ballet scholarship. So I graduated, got my BA. Later I got my MA, and now I have an honorary doctorate. So I'm a big believer in the college system. You don't, you don't, that's not something that you, uh, you're given that. I believe that you're born with talent. The thing is to find out what talent that is, and then you study to develop and do it as well as you can. And that's the secret. But I think spending four years in college, besides naturally singing and dancing and doing all of that, it was so natural to me. I learned how to behave with other people, and I took courses that I normally wouldn't take had I had to pay for them. It was part of the curriculum. So I, I, I grew up better, and I also had a mentor at school, the man who was head of the theater department, who became my mentor and gave me opportunities that I wouldn't have gotten had I gone to New York at 18 years of age. So uh, I was blessed, and he allowed me to direct and choreograph my uh, junior and senior years. And then during the summer, we would go and do summer stock. And I got my actor's equity card between my freshman and sophomore year. And then uh, uh, I danced with a Cincinnati Opera Ballet uh, two summers. And then the university, we went to a couple of summer stock theaters that we ran. And I was part of that. And uh, so I got a lot of training. So when I came to New York, after I graduated from college, I became a substitute English teacher, junior high English. And uh, I didn't sign a contract because I wanted to go to New York. So I took the substitute category and as soon, and it was after Christmas because I wanted to stay at home and I saved up $500 and my professor drove me to New York and I stayed with friends from college there. And I went to my first audition, my first job, and it was the Juliet Prowse nightclub back. Now you may not know who Juliet Prowse is, but you should look her up on, and she spells her last name P-R-O-W-S-E. And you get to Wikipedia and you read all about Juliet Prowse. She was a wonderful, wonderful dancer. And she did movies with Frank Sinatra, with whom she had a, an affair and was engaged to. And also Elvis Presley, who she also had a brief affair with. So you can read all about Juliet. That was my first audition, first job. And the reason... I got it, Charles, was that I was studied. I had studied very hard in school and I had a lot of experience before I came to New York. So I never had to become a waiter or take a secondary job, but I could type and take shorthand because I took that in high school knowing that I would have to have a craft in case I couldn't get a job, you know, in show business. So I, I was prepared. So when, you know, people paint dark pictures, 
about going into show business and saying, well, you've got to be ready to wait tables and do blah, blah, blah. Uh, I think that in anything in life, if you decide what it is you want to do, that's the secret. And if you like it, then you study it. And then you know what you're doing so that when the opportunities come, you can deliver. And uh, I, I never had a problem. So by so that's, a long, that's a long answer to your question, but it gives you a basis to know. Yeah. So by what means did you get to New York? What no, I saved my money from teaching uh, a substitute teacher in English. I okay. saved my salary and I saved up $500 and that's what I had in my pocket when I went to New York. And I stayed with friends from college who were already there. And uh, so, you know, I didn't have to pay rent right away. And then later I did get my own apartment. So how did you get to audition for your first Broadway show, which was Sweet Charity? Yes, well, I was a member of Actors Equity because I got my card because I did summer stop between my freshman and sophomore year in college. So I had my equity card so I didn't have to go to the open call. I could go to the equity call. And uh, it was Bob Fosse, director, choreographer, and the star was Gwen Verdon, of course. And you know all about them. Did you watch the Fosse Verdon thing on television, that series? I did, I did. It was a little mature, but you got an idea about it. Uh, their private life was not that much a part of, but I did work with the two of them and had a wonderful working relationship with them until they, they passed away. But at that audition for Sweet Charity, I wore ballet tights because that's all I had to wear. I, they didn't sell dance pants in Covington, Kentucky or Cincinnati, Ohio. And uh, you couldn't really buy them in New York because the dancers made them for one another. And so I wore ballet tights and Fosse wasn't paying much attention to me at the dance audition because I think he thought I was a ballet dancer and couldn't do his style. But Gwen Verdon was watching me, so I knew that was good. And then once we sang, uh, Cy Coleman, who composed the score, jumped up from a seat and ran out of the Bob Fosse because he wanted my voice. And I knew that was a good thing. And then Fosse was still not buying me. So then he had me read for a small part in the show called Young Spanish Man. And the other boy auditioning was Puerto Rican. But I had had Spanish 101 at the University of Cincinnati. So when I said, senorita, senorita, she's drowning in the lake. I could my R's. And the other kid didn't speak very well, and I got the part. And I was in the show. And, uh, I mean, I'll go on and brag a little bit, but uh, Fosse still wasn't uh, buying me. He was rather distant to me. And then in that fruit number, we had to smoke cigarettes, which of course he did. That was one of the reasons he died so young. Mm -hmm. But I don't smoke. I said, well, I don't smoke and I will, will not smoke. So he said, well, I guess you can carry an unlit cigarette, which didn't please him a lot, but I wasn't going to smoke. And then we got out of town in Philadelphia and we had our first performance. And this is a true story. I'm bragging, but it's a true story. And Fosse came backstage and he said to me, what were you doing out there tonight? And I thought, oh my God, I'm gonna get fired because he doesn't like me. And I said, well, I don't know what you mean. He said, you performing like that. You never perform like that in rehearsal. He said, I couldn't keep my eyes off of you tonight. You I said, well, you never asked for me to perform in rehearsal. So then I became a favorite. 
And uh, oh. then when we got back to New York after the show opened, uh, I handed in my notice because uh, at my first audition for Juliet Prowse, I made $350 a week and $400 when we played Vegas. And the Broadway salary then was $125. Oh. So he's, I handed him my notice. And again, he came into the dressing room and he said, I understand you handed in your notice. I want to know why you did that. You know that so many people want to work with me and I'm going to have to go back and rehearsal now to replace you. Just give me one good reason why you're leaving the show. And I said, Julia Prowse pays me three times what you do. And he laughed and he said, well, I can't, he said, I can't uh, argue with that. And he asked me to do the film. And as a matter of fact, if you watch the film or you go on YouTube and watch the Frug from the movie, when the girl with the long black ponytail, I'm the guy on your left and Buddy Vest oh. is the guy on the right. And uh, so that's, the, that's how you'll recognize me. And uh, it was a wonderful experience. And uh, then Ben Vereen, Buddy Vest and I also were in the rhythm of life number in the movie. And I'm the one with a mustache, a goatee, long black hair, and I'm dressed like an Indian. I've got a feather in my in a headband, and I have on a furry jacket and a red velvet shirt, paisley pants, and desert boots. And I have one line. I said, we're going to climb to number one, Big Daddy. That's my only line in the show. And the only time I took a puff of a cigarette was in a close-up in that number because I had to carry a lit cigarette because it was film. And I took one puff. And that was it. It was a take. And that's the only time I've ever puffed a cigarette. So yeah. you find that amusing when you watch it. So when you were in rehearsals on Broadway, how did you sort of observe Fossey and Burden working together? Oh, I, I used to go into the room when we would have our five-minute breaks and whatever. I would go into the room where they were working, and I would sit and observe and watch them. And they never asked me to leave the room. You know, they, I stayed in there to watch them because I knew I was watching two geniuses. So I watched them work together. And the fascinating thing, I remember one day they were working and Bob said, ah, I don't know if any of this is any good. On you, everything looks good. And he was right. Because then he would do the step and then she did it, but it was art. What she did as an actor, as an actress, she just made everything look so much better because she had like ball bearing joints in her body. And she had this incredible face where she acted with her face. So uh, I'm sorry that you will never get to see what she did on the stage, but you can watch the movie of Damn Yankees and you can get a glimpse of what it was that she did. And uh, she was just a genius, that's all. One of the biggest influences in my life, and also a wonderful person. She came out of the chorus, as did uh, Cheetah Rivera. Yeah. I did. And so many of the people, we came out of the chorus because that's what you used to do. You started out in the chorus and you worked your way up. And people got to know you and then you start auditioning for parts. And there's another thing that you should watch. If you go on YouTube, and you tune in, uh, if you write in Cool Hand Luke, Gwen Verdon, it's a dance that Buddy Vest and I did with Gwen on a uh, Bob Hope special. And Fosse choreographed it for just the three of us. And that was one of the greatest moments of my life, working privately 
with Gwen and Bobby for a week doing that number. So, you know, write it down. I cool will. Hand Luke, Gwen Ferdin, and you watch that and it's just wonderful. Then other things, you should tune in to Google and uh, I mean, uh, you know, to YouTube and put my name in and watch a lot of this stuff. I did a number with uh, uh, Eliza Minnelli when I was a chorus boy on the Ed Sullivan Show again, and it was called Oh Sweet Blindness. Liza Minnelli, you type it in and you'll see the number. And again, I'm the boy I think on the right then. And there's only two of us with Liza doing the number. So a lot of my chorus boy days, you can see on YouTube and also the Ann Bancroft special called Change Partners. I'm the boy that first dances with Ann Bancroft. So you can see a lot of my early stuff as a chorus boy. And then you can type in, uh, you know, a lot of the other stuff like in performance at the White House, uh, and you type in my name and stuff will come up and you'll see a lot of the things that I did. And um, if you're Irish uh, with my name and you'll see a number I did on, uh, uh, on one of the TV network specials, Parade of Stars. And uh, there's a lot of stuff. And then also we're in the money. If you put in Bob Hope, Bob Hope and you'll see me dancing on the dime from 42nd Street and also the 42nd Street Ballet on the Miss Universe contest is on YouTube. So you can watch a lot of stuff that I did. I will, I will. So uh, when you were on the set of the movie, was it tense to sort of have Gwen Verdon there and at the same time she wasn't chosen to play charity in the movie? Well, she was older then. And uh, she wouldn't have been chosen because she was also have the TVQ that, uh, Shirley MacLaine had, but her husband was directing and choreographing and she, no one knew the show better. And she was there to assist and to train Shirley MacLaine. It was very hard for me personally to watch that because not that Shirley MacLaine didn't do a fine job, she did, but she wasn't Gwen Verdon. The magic that Gwen Verdon had, no one else is ever going to have. So that it was difficult to watch her showing the stuff and then Shirley trying to do it. Um, and I don't want to put her down. She did a lovely job, but it wasn't Gwen Verdon. And uh, yeah. it was a big difference. Do you generally not prefer to work on movies? No, I would do movies in a second, but they don't do a lot of musical movies. Yeah. And at that time, uh, the golden age of the MGM, which I was too young to be a part of, was over. Yeah. And the only reason they did Sweet Charity was because Shirley MacLaine was a big movie star but they didn't do movie musicals. It went out of fashion. Once rock music and all of the contemporary music came in, musicals kind of went out of fashion. I mean, they did hair and a couple of things like that, but generally speaking, you know, it, it, it went out, movie musicals went out of fashion. That's all. Yes. So your next show was Oklahoma, where you worked with the original Wicked Witch from The Wizard of Oz, Margaret Hatton. Yeah. Who was just, divine. She was a wonderful woman and uh, we became very close and she would invite me down to her apartment on Gramercy Park and she would make toasted cheese sandwiches as she called them. I call them grilled cheese but she called them toasted cheese sandwiches and we would have tea. So, And she autographed, she had eight by ten glossies from The Wizard of Oz and she signed some to me and I had her sign them to all my nieces and nephews. And I have many nieces and nephews. Now I have, I'm the youngest of seven. 
I have over a hundred nieces and nephews because really? my nieces and nephews are all grandparents now. So, you know, I have generations of, and they all just keep, you know, uh, multiplying. So she was kind enough to sign all those pictures to my uh, nieces and nephews and I treasure them. And uh, also Richard Rogers, the re original composer, personally selected me to play Will Parker. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah, and I had to go in and audition for him privately at Lincoln Center at the New York State Theater. And I was told not to sing a Richard Rogers song at the audition because he was very particular about how people sang his songs. And they said, because if you don't sing a right note or you sing a wrong lyric, he gets very upset. So don't sing a Richard Rogers song. So I thought in my mind, well, I'll impress him with the fact that besides being a dancer, I'm really a singer. So I decided to sing a ballad, Leonard Bernstein's Lonely Town. And I got about two words out and he said, I don't wanna hear you sing that song. You're supposed to sing a comedy song. Don't you have a comedy song? And I said, no, Mr. Rogers, I didn't bring one, but I can sing Kansas City for you. I know he said, well, why wouldn't you sing that? You sing it in the show. And I said, I'd love to sing it for you. And I sang two choruses. And then he said, young man, can you dance? I said, yes, sir. He said, show me. So I had a dance routine that I did for him. And then he said, young man. I said, yes, sir. He said, is there anything you can't do? I said, no, sir, there isn't. And I got the job. Really? I didn't have a script for him. He chose me. And that was a big deal yeah. to work for Richard Rogers. And of course, I thought of him as being very old. He was around my age now back then, but he seemed like a, an old man to me. And he had part of his jaw removed because he had cancer. Oh. And he walked like an old man with small steps. And I just thought to myself, thank you, God, for letting me work with Richard Rogers before he dies. Thank you. And he signed my score for me. And he signed my poster for me. And I didn't want anyone else's name on it but his, because I revered him. He was one of our great composers. A genius, really. And he liked me, and I liked him, and I, I am so lucky to have had that experience. But the irony is, I thought of him, you know, not being, he went after Oklahoma and wrote three more scores before he passed. He yeah. did, uh, I remember Mom, Rex, and a Two by Two. And his daughter said the only time her, her father was ever really happy was when he was doing a show. And I understand that totally, because that's the kind of dedication it takes if you want to have a career in the theater. I know the first day of college, our professor said, if there is anyone in this class who can be happy doing anything else but the theater, do it. It's only for those of you who can't do anything else, and this is what you want to do. And I believe that. It requires that kind of dedication. And uh, I had, I, I could do other things. I could type and take shorthand, but I couldn't do anything but, but show business. It was in my blood. It's what I studied to do. And I did study to do it and I do it well. And that's why I've always worked. So you were saying that you never saw the sort of darker side of Richard Rogers that someone like Stephen Sondheim has sort of complained about? No, no, I never saw that. He was always very kind to me. I mean, I didn't go out with him and have dinner and drinks, 
And uh, I know that, you know, basically, you know, if you read all the material, they say he was an alcoholic and he did have darkness. And also when you create, if something is, if when it's a big hit and everything's wonderful, it's terrific. But then when it isn't, it isn't. And unfortunately not everything he did was the big hit, but he uh, was obsessed with his work as I am. And so many of the great people that I worked with, it's the same thing. Bob Fosse, Gwen Verdon, uh, Jerry Herman, Julie Stein, Cy Coleman, Charles Strauss, all of the great people, Betty Condon, Adolph Green, all of them were consumed with the work. They loved it so much. And when it doesn't work, it's so depressing. But when it does, there's nothing like it. Yeah. And so I think everybody shares that passion. So your choreographer on that production was Gemzy Delac. She had been, I believe, in the original Oklahoma. So was it nice? I don't know whether she was in the original cast, but she did it. And she was one. And also Agnes DeMille was still alive then, who created it. And Jimsy was one of her disciples. And Jimsy uh, restaged a lot of Agnes's work, Carousel, and Oklahoma particularly. And Jimsy actually danced Laurie in the Dream Ballet, uh, not originally, but after that. And she also, uh, you know, did a lot of the restaging of the musical. And no one knew it better than Jimsy. Mm -hmm. And Agnes was then, you know, had had a stroke and sat in a chair with a cane, but she came to rehearsals and supervised. Now, Kansas City, uh, I think that that number is kind of based on whoever does it. There's a formula that they do. And uh, so I don't think Agnes had as much to do with the staging of that. Uh, at least I didn't have that that connection with her. She approved it once she saw me do it, but I never had a personal thing with her. She spent more time on the ballet and the girls number, like many a new day and that kind of thing. Uh, but uh, Jimsy was terrific. Now, I have to preface that I had done a production of Oklahoma prior to Lincoln Center with John Raitt out at the, um, it was uh, the Mineola Theater on Long Island. And I played Will Parker there. And Jimsy uh, didn't choreograph it, but her assistant, Dennis Cole, choreographed it. And so uh, I had a good relationship with Dennis. And so when I was asked to audition for the Lincoln Center production, Jimsy was going to choreograph it. And Dennis had recommended me to Jimsy. So when I came in to audition, I was just to really get his approval because, uh, you know, Jimsy, Dennis had recommended me. So they paid a lot of attention to me because of that recommendation. So Dennis had a lot to do with mine being selected and Jimsy approved me. And then, you know, Richard Rogers approved me. So, you know, it wasn't just Richard Rogers. There were other people involved. And that's how it happened. But he liked me. He liked me. And uh, he never gave me notes. He... Uh, when I did my number for him in rehearsal, he said, he used to call me Roy. He would say, Roy, when you point your finger and you go, counting 20 gas buggies, put your hand down here so I can see your face and do counting 20 gas buggies so I can see your face. I said, yes, Mr. Rogers, is there anything? He said, no. He said, that's all. That's the only note I ever got from it. And I was a singer. And you know, a lot of the dancers back in that period weren't singers. So uh, it, 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 it was a happy, happy time. 
and they didn't do a cast recording. And that's the only time they didn't because they did do cast recordings with those Lincoln Center productions because he produced them. But, uh, and that was the last one that played Lincoln Center. And they didn't record it, so I don't have a record of it. But I have that wonderful uh, video that goes on TV, but unfortunately they only do the dance and not the song. Uh, you know, so you don't get to hear me sing Kansas, instead you just see the dance. Uh, so they cut that part out that's on YouTube. So do you prefer doing revivals to originals or the other way, do you think? Charles, I'll do anything. <laughs> I'll do a revival, I'll do an original, I'll do whatever it takes. Yeah, I, uh, I, I, I will do anything. I love my work and uh, going into applause is a, is a very interesting transition for me yeah. because uh, when I auditioned, my uh, then agent said, you have to be very careful because the character is gay, a homosexual hairdresser. And he said, you have to be very careful to, I don't know what you should audition for it because you might get typecast. And it's not good because, you know, there was a time when homosexuals could be put into jail. Yeah. It was a very strange time in our history. I didn't think about it twice. First of all, I'm sexual. I am gay. I'm very proud of it. Uh, I got married when it was legal. And uh, I, I am very proud of that. And I'm very happy to have lived through that in my life. So I didn't have a problem about playing the part. And to me, I didn't think of it. I just thought of it as a part. Yeah. And also to work with Lauren Bacall, who was a big movie star, it excited me, but I didn't get the job, Charles. They didn't pick me, they picked another guy. I was very depressed. And Juliet had asked me to go back to do her act. And I had played a role on Broadway with Oklahoma and I thought I'm going back now going back into the chorus so it was very depressing but I took it because I make money I like to make money and it was good money yeah. so I stopped in Covington to spend Thanksgiving with my family and then Juliet's manager called and said she wants you to come out earlier to start rehearsal but I didn't want to go because I wanted to spend Thanksgiving with my family and also I was like Victoria Page in the red shoes I was just being pulled back and I said Mark I don't want to do the act. I want to go back to New York. I'm stepping back. I've got to go forward. And so I had to call Juliet and she was kind enough to let me out of it. And I went back to New York. And of course, I went back under the chorus dancing for Peter Gennaro on the Ed Sullivan show because I like to make money. And you have to to support yourself. So uh, I was depressed, but auditioning for applause, the feedback was good. And my agent said, they liked you very much. I think they're going to offer you the role. Well, they did. They gave it to someone else. And by that time, I was living with a Robert Donahoe, who became my partner and eventually my husband. Oh. Uh, we were living together then in my apartment. And uh, it was New Year's Eve. And I was very depressed. And Bob bought a bottle of champagne. And we toasted. And I said, you know, that part should have been mine. I should have had that part. The next morning, the phone rang. They fired the guy playing the part and offered me the role. Wow. So I did it. I got to do the role. And that began my relationship with Lauren Bacall, which lasted until her death. Uh, a very, very close friendship with many, many stories. And uh, so that was the beginning with applause. And then after uh, Betty, because her name, her real 
name was Betty Persky. And her friend, my first day of rehearsal, I said, Miss Pacall, and she said, my friends call me Betty. So I said, Betty. So that was her name, Betty. And so uh, Betty wanted me to go to London to do applause there. But my agent then was also her agent because of her. And he said, don't tell Betty, but uh, uh, you shouldn't go to London. You need to change your image. You've played a homosexual. And it was, by the way, the first openly gay character in a musical. So I have that to my credit, that I played the first openly gay character in a musical. So uh, I decided to do Lorelei with Carol Channing, which was a remake of Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, and I played an Olympic athlete. So, you know, that's how I went back. And I didn't go to London to do uh, applause, and they offered me the TV role, but I couldn't get out of Lorelei. They wouldn't give me a release. So I couldn't do it. And also, the, the TV version wasn't very good. And also, because of the position of the camera, the camera was primarily on Lauren Bacall, and certainly not as much on the other characters. Mm-hmm. And they also did not do the number in the second act. So it, it, was the, it was the best choice to make. And that began my career with Carol Channing, which led to my playing Cornelius Hack on her first revival of Hello, Dolly, which led to my lifetime friendship with Jerry Herman and Carol Channing. So those are the reasons. Who knows what road you take, but that's the road I took, and, and that was the result of it. Do you think that those things that your agents were saying, were those worries that you shared? Uh, I, I thought about it. I didn't think they were ridiculous, but I didn't care. Yeah. Because uh, I, I am what I am, and I'm proud of it. And why shouldn't I play a gay character? Uh, because I am. So why not play it? But that doesn't mean I can't play other characters and vice versa. You know, when you're an actor, you're an actor. So you put on the costume and you play different characters. You don't have to be that character. And also, when I turned 18 years old, uh, I got my notice for the draft. And there was a question then, I don't know whether it's on it anymore, but it said, are you a homosexual? Yes, no. And my mother said, you check yes, because your father and your three brothers went into the service and that's enough. You're not going into the service and you check yes. And I thought about it for a while and I thought, now this is the government. And if I check no, I'm lying. So am I going to be ashamed and lie about who I am? No, I'm not. And I checked yes. And I got a 4F rating. But I didn't care. And also, back in those days, a lot of homosexual men went into the service. And they served as homosexual women. They just couldn't be who they were. And, you know, it's, it's, it's such bigotry and all of that to deny who you are. Thank God we've come that far and that we will continue. And hopefully, I don't want to get political with you, but hopefully we're not going to be turned into a dictatorship and go back to those days. Yeah. when Jews and gays and, uh, and Blacks and ethnics are going to be, you know, uh, put into lower categories. It's, we've got to move forward. That's why we had to get rid of this insane president who's in control now. We have to get rid of him. And I'm making my statement, and I'm a, a citizen of the United States, and I have the rights to my opinion, and that's the way I feel about it. We've got to get rid of that man and get back to some normalcy and come back to what our country should be and the democracy that we have. So it's going to be very interesting what's going to happen in the next month. 
but the people have to care and have to uh, get out and vote. Yeah. It's just, that's like the thing with the Supreme Court justice now. The fact that when Obama was there, they wouldn't allow him to select. And now it's just a month left, they allow him to select. It's not fair. They're a bunch of hypocrites. And the, and the Republican Party should be held accountable for that, especially Mitch McConnell. Yeah, I, I agree. So anyway, and we have to stand up. We live in a democracy. We have a right to voice our opinions. And it's a very important to make that, uh, you know, you, you have to stand up for, for what you believe. Yeah. Make the commitment. Make the commitment. Uh, I have done that. All of my life, Charles, I uh, wasn't afraid of playing a homosexual character. And uh, I even, because I loved Hello, Dolly so much, and I played Cornelius in uh, uh, 78, and I directed Carol's last revival of it in 94. And then I wanted to play the role myself, not because I wanted to dress up in women's clothes. I just wanted to play the part because it's such a rich role to play. And Actors should not be limited by their sexuality to play roles. Yeah. Men should play women's roles if, if, if it's feasible, and women also. It's like if I were a woman, I'd love to play Professor Higgins in My Fair Lady. I think that a woman could dress up like a man and play Professor Higgins. I think she could pull it off. And Dolly is such a wonderful role, and uh, I wanted to play it, and I did. And uh, I was the only... Uh, equity actor that got permission to do it because I knew Jerry Herman and Mike Stewart who wrote the book. Oh. And I got permission from, uh, you know, the, the, uh, from them to why Mike was passed, but his estate gave me permission. So I went down and played it in uh, Boca Raton at the, uh, Boca Raton rather, in, um, at the Wick Theater. So I played Dolly and that was another first time for me. So that's good. I, I'm proud of that. And I, you know, as far as playing homosexual roles, I play La Caja Fall. I was to be the last replacement on Broadway. I left 42nd Street to do it. And I was in rehearsal for a week and they closed the show, but I was to take over the Broadway role. And we oh. were going to reopen the Mark Hallinger Theater because uh, the Palace Theater, the only reason the show closed was that they were going to uh, build a building there at the Palace Theater and they had to transfer the show. And uh, the stock market, you know, became Black Tuesday back then. And, and there were a lot of problems. They decided to close the show instead of moving it to the Mark Hellinger. And then we lost that theater to a church. As yeah, that's of it. But everything was in the plan. I was going to be in New York at the uh, Palace. And then I was going to open at the Mark Hellinger. And they were going to do a whole big plan about it. But also AIDS was around then, which was a dark period. So the producer decided to close the show. So I never got on, but I was in the Broadway company and I can declare myself as a member of the Broadway production. And then I went on to play at many, many places. I did the production of Paper Mill. I did the 10th anniversary tour and I played many theaters of playing Alban slash Zaza. And it was a role that, that uh, required the most of my talents. And uh, so, and I loved playing the role and I also, I did Victor Victoria at the Musical Theater of San Jose. And if you go into YouTube and you do American Musical Theater of San Jose, La Cajo Fall, American Musical Theater of San Jose, Victor Victoria, you will see my performance in those roles. So you can watch those. I will. 
So, so I'm giving you lots of uh, time for, for you to spend. <laughs> so going back to applause, you were saying that you had a friendship with Lauren Bacall that had a lot of stories. I would love to hear some of those if you... Well, it's, for instance, uh, my first meeting with her, my first day of rehearsal, because the show was already into uh, run-throughs. So mm -hmm. I had to learn a lot. And uh, Ron Field threw the script at me and said, now you make your entrance in this first scene and you go over and you stand by the closet. And I said, okay. I said, well, uh, when I come in, and because they won't know who I am, can I carry a fall and be brushing it? So they'll know. And then I said, and, and Miss Bacall, I will touch your hair. I promise I won't. She said, my friends call me Betty. I said, Betty. She said, that's Betty. Better. So I, then I went over and I stood by the closet and they were doing this scene and directing and suddenly I was standing there and I said, when does this character get out of the closet? And she laughed and that was it. We made the connection. I can't explain it to you. It's as if I knew her in a former life and we became together at that point. And like Sally Field says, she liked me. She really did like me. So it was working. And uh, then when we got ready before we left to go out of town, we did a gypsy run through. And it was in a theater because in those days, uh, we rehearsed in theaters and we also auditioned on the stage of theaters. They stopped doing that because of the expense. But in those days we did. We rehearsed in rehearsal rooms, but then the last couple of days before we, show, we went into theaters. And uh, so they were going to do a gypsy run through, which is an invited audience. And it's the first time an audience will see the show. And that day in the audience was David Merrick, Hal Prince, every big shot in New York was in that audience. And Bacall was standing in the wings and she was shaking like this. And I could see her shaking and everybody was afraid to go near her. You know, I walked up to her and I grabbed her hands when I said, why are you so nervous? I said, it only depends on you. <laughs> she laughed and she, she said, you son of a bitch. She said, don't ever leave me. And I said, I will never leave you. And so that became a thing that we did before every performance. I stood in the wings and held her hands and talked to her. Really? And then when she walked on stage, mine was the hand that held on to her as she walked on stage. And that was our little thing that we did for every performance. And then when we got out of town, we started eating together. And then we went out together. And when we got back to New York at the Palace Theater, in those days, the stage door was on the inside. It was like an L shape and it wasn't on the street side. Now there's a street side entrance, and back then it wasn't. So you had to go into an L-shaped alley into the stage door, it was hidden. But the people knew it was there, and they would be waiting for autographs. And when we got back to New York, there were always people there. And I said, you know, Betty, you shouldn't be leaving the theater alone like that, walking by yourself. I said, well, what am I gonna do? The, the, uh, the stage doorman isn't gonna do it, the stage manager is not gonna do it. I said, I'll do it. I said, because I used to stop by her dressing room before every performance and check in. We'd laugh and then I'd, and I said, and after the show, I will just stay and I'll walk you to your car. She said, you'll do that? I said, of course I'll do it. She said, well, then I'll give you a lift home. 
So, you know, I had limo service too when she, you know, went home after the show. And so that was a, 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 we, that was a routine that we did. So I went home with her. And many times we'd stop at Nathan's and get a hot dog or we'd go back to her apartment at the Dakota Fabulous Apartment, which sold for 21 million. And you pay $12,500 a month maintenance, that apartment at the Dakota. And then uh, sometimes we'd go into her apartment and order Chinese food. So it was really, really great. We were that close to friends. And another good story, I started collecting signatures on my posters. I had Richard Rogers on my Oklahoma poster. That's the only name I wanted on it. And then when I did Sweet Charity, I had Gwen Verdon and Bob Fosse on it. And I wanted to get Neil Simon. And I found out where he lived and I went down and I thought he would have a secretary, something answered the door. So it was a townhouse in the village. And I knocked on the door and he answered the door. I was so embarrassed, but he remembered who I was and he signed the poster and gave me a Coca-Cola. So I started doing that. So my thing became, if your name was on the poster, I had your signature on it. So I started that with applause again. And the only name I didn't have was Betty Comden, you know, one of the book writers. So uh, she was coming to the theater and she always saw Bacall. She didn't come to see me because I had the dressing room at the top. And uh, so I left my poster in Betty's dressing room and I said, when Betty Compton comes, you know, that day, I knew she was coming. I said, please have her sign my poster. So after the matinee, I went into the room with Bacall. And so I said, did Betty sign the poster? She said, yes, she didn't know. Leroy, by the way, this is Ingrid Bergman. <laughs> I said, Miss Bergman, how? What an honor to meet you. And Betty said, well, why don't you have her sign your poster? And I'm thinking, she's not in the show, but what could you do? So I said, oh, Miss Bergman, and she signed it. Betty said, leave the poster here, and everyone that you meet will get them to sign your poster. So oh. all the famous people that I met, their names are on that post, over signatures. of The greatest people in the world are on that uh, poster. So that's uh, another book call story for you. Who are some of the other people who you have? Oh, my God. Betty Davis, Joan Crawford, the wow. Duke and Duchess of Windsor, uh, Yul Brenner, uh, every big name, Deborah Carr, Rudolph Nureyev, Margot Fontaine. I mean, wow. name a celebrity. I've got it on that poster. And then I also, in my other uh, shows, the people that I have met, I started having them sign posters, too. Like in the producers, I had celebrities who came back and things like that. So, uh, yeah, I've got, and they're all hanging on my wall, Charles. I know a, a person once said, oh, I don't understand you show people to have your posters on the wall. It's such an ego trip. I said, no, it isn't an ego trip. I'm very proud of that. And it reminds me of the good time I had. And also those people's names that I see remind me of how lucky I am to have been in their presence and to have worked with most of them. I said, it has nothing to do with an ego. It has to do with happiness and, and, and being proud of your work. Why shouldn't we do that? And every time I look at those posters that I go up and down the staircase, I'm reminded of how lucky I am to have had what I've had in my life. Yeah. So, and 42nd Street, you know, was a, a highlight of my life being in that show and working with Gower Champion. Uh, and creating that role. It's, uh, it, it, was, it was a highlight and it brought me into prominence and got me a Tony Award nomination. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it was good. And I replaced in Beauty and the Beast, 
but it was a wonderful show. And I replaced in the producers, but again, it was a wonderful part. So it's the work. And I did 42nd Street for almost eight years. And everyone said, how can you do that show eight times a week? I said, well, first of all, that's what I've been trained to do, to do eight shows a week. And it's a wonderful show. And I love those songs. I never tired of singing them and dancing them. And uh, it, the audience is different every time. I've never walked into a theater ever in my life and thought to myself, oh, gee, I wish I didn't have to do this tonight. I've yeah. never had that thought. I've walked in being excited to walk out on a stage. And that thrill of standing on a stage has never left me. I've never done a performance where I went, oh, God, I wish I were home watching TV. Or No, never. Yeah. Never had that feeling. I've always been happy and proud to be out there. And the closing of the show is so sad. But, uh, you know, you just have to go on to the next thing. And it's just the work. And I met Jack Benny, uh, uh, George Burns, and uh, Bob Hope. And I asked them all the same question. Because they were very, they were older men, but they were very youthful in their attitudes. And I said, what's the secret? And they said, I've always loved my work. And I love doing it. Because they were rich men, they didn't have to work. But it's doing the work. You never get over that. Richard Rogers, the same thing. Loving the work. Carol Channing, loving the work. Lauren Bacall, loving the work. That's what we do. Yeah. And uh, that's, that's, you, that's why you become successful. And, and that's why those of us who can are, feel lucky and grateful continue to enjoy it. So when you were out of town with applause, you had Penny Fuller come in and Diane McAfee go out. So was that a big change? Or? It was a big change. And, but see, I came in as a replacement in rehearsal. So when we got out of town, it's not that Diane McAfee wasn't good in the part. She wasn't as experienced and it wasn't quite, the, the combination wasn't quite right. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's no fault of hers, but what happened when uh, Penny came out of town, uh, I didn't know Penny Fuller. I knew of her, but I didn't know her. And uh, Bonnie Franklin was friends with Penny Fuller, and Bonnie Franklin's manager recognized Penny in the audience. Oh. The first taste, we went, oops, why is Penny Fuller out of town? And then they made the change. And... The thing was, Diane was young and, you know, she had dark hair and Bacall was blondish and uh, it was like young and older and this and that, but there, the competition wasn't as real as having Eve be a little older. And also Penny Fuller happens to be a brilliant actress. And I will never forget our first day of rehearsal with Penny. And when she made her entrance into the the dressing room scene. Uh, she walked into the room and she looked at all of us and then she looked at Bacall and something in her eyes happened. And I went, whoa, look out. And the scene went on and I know at one point Ron said, well, you know, Penny, uh, 
I, I think that if you could be a little, she said, not youthful, Ron. I have to be in competition. I, I, I have to be a mature woman to compete with Lauren McCall. Yeah. And I thought, oh, oh God, is she smart. So it didn't need direction. She knew what she was doing. And then as we went through the rehearsal, we were all like watching her. And I got to the end of the first act where Eve Harrington says, well, you know, uh, Miss Channing, for, you know, uh, forget it. You know, when she's leaving, you know, forgive me or whatever she says, or, you know, and of course, uh, Bacall with Diane, Bacall would say, uh, she would say, oh, I do. And then Diane would sort of like shrink off, you know, back up. And when Bacall said it to Penny, and she said, oh, Billy, and there, you know, and she did walk under the theater and Bacall challenged Penny and Penny looked back at Bacall and she challenged her when she left. She raised her head and went, as she walked off and I went, oh, Jesus. And Bacall burst into that number and sang it like she had never sung it. And when she finished, Betty held out her hands and she and Penny embraced her. Bacall held out her hands for Penny to come to her. She embraced her and she said, thank God I've got an actress to work with. And that was it. Oh. And I think we got mixed reviews in Philadelphia. And when we opened in Detroit with Penny Fuller, the reviews were better. And I think, my personal opinion, is I think one of the big reasons the show became the hit it was, besides Bacall's wonderful performance, was the performance of Penny Fuller. That challenge that she presented made it work. And her experience. And it wasn't Diane's fun. And Diane went on later to do the bus and trunk of the show, you know. But Penny just had that extra something with her maturity that made it work. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So Harry was also, is also a brilliant actor. Yeah. And his portrayal worked in the show. And uh, my portrayal worked. Because I played Dwayne Fox as a stereotypical, lisping, you know, sissy. I, did, I played him as a real person. And I think that's why it worked. And uh, I think that's why the parts worked. And I had that same experience doing it with Ann Baxter. And that's why I think the part worked in the show. He wasn't a caricature of a gay person, which a lot of times it was. I played him real. Yeah. The fact that he was gay and had a bit of flair about him was part of the humor, but I didn't play him as a lisping sissy. I didn't play that. I played him as an honest person. Now, people may think they remember that, but that's not the way I played him. So anyway. So it was a sort of intimidating, I guess, writing team because it was not one, two of the biggest writing teams on Broadway, Strauss and Adams and Comden Green. So do you think that that was good or do you think it was ever sort of too many cooks in the kitchen? Well, no. Uh, well, originally, Betty and Adolph wrote the part for the character to not only be gay, but black. They wanted a black oh. actor. And uh, they didn't select a black actor. I don't know whether a black actor even auditioned. I don't know. I can't, I can't say. But that was their intent originally. And they, but they didn't go that way. And, uh, and then also, uh, you know, I didn't really have a number in the show. I, that she's no longer a gypsy with Bonnie Franklin, who we became lifelong friends. I mean, we became joined at the hip uh, until she passed. It was... A very sad day, she called me and she said, uh, I wanted to call you and tell you that I have cancer. 
and I didn't want you to hear it on the news, but I want you to know that I do and I'm fighting it. And uh, so, you know, I went through that with her and the day she passed, uh, I told her, I said, you know, Bonnie, I'm not gonna be calling you all the time because you need to concentrate on getting well and you're going to be undergoing you know, all sorts of treatment. You're not gonna feel well. So when you wanna talk to me, you call me. I don't wanna bother you. And uh, one day, or the day before I told Bob that, uh, I said, you know, I can't get Bonnie out of my mind today. So I decided to email her. So I emailed her and said, you know, oh, and I said, so when you feel like it, please call me. I, you know, I, I miss you. And that, that she was dead the next day. Really? And I heard it on the news like everybody else. But I was so happy that she got the attention she did because of one day at a time, that TV show. Because I didn't think of it as being that important, but it was. And it affected a lot of people, especially, you know, uh, one parent children. And I didn't realize that it made that big of an impression. So she made her stamp. Yeah. And uh, that was terrific. And she died much too young. She died much too young. But, uh, you know, that show and my friendship with Penny Fuller and Len Cariou is still continuing. As a matter of fact, I'll tell you a good story on Len Cariou. It was Christmas. And Len came in and tossed a package on my table, my dressing table. And it was a tie from Bergdorf Goodman. A multicolor tie. I still wear it. I love it. And I said, well, Len, what, uh, well, how wonderful. Thank you for the Christmas present. I don't have anything. But he said, well, I don't want anything from you. I just wanted you to know how much I love you. And that's the first time, Charles, that a heterosexual man ever said, I love you to me. My father never said it. My brothers never said it. Len Cariou was the first heterosexual man who looked at me and said, I love you. Really? So, you know, it was quite a time in my life and we've been close friends ever since. And he has a wonderful wife, Heather. And whenever he has birthdays or special occasions, I'm always invited. And uh, so I have lifelong friendships from applause. And also Brandon Maggard, we became lifelong friends. So that's, it's wonderful to maintain that. And of course, Penny lives in New York, so we see each other all the time. Penny should have gone into teaching. I think Penny made a wonderful acting teacher, but uh, she didn't. She, I think she should have, because she really is very good at her craft. And uh, she has a, a dedication to the art that I think she could pass on and inspire other students, but she doesn't. So I want to ask you about the next show you did, which as you mentioned was Lorelei, which was yes. sort of a sequel to Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. So how was your sort of friendship with Carol Channing? And yes. How involved was Charles Love in that? Because that was when they were still married. Well, uh, I didn't know Carol Channing. And uh, the first day of rehearsal, uh, well, first of all, I auditioned for the part and Joe Layton was the director choreographer and Joe Layton selected me to be in the show. But of, of course, Julie Stein, was there at uh, my final audition. I don't remember uh, Comden and Green being there, but I assume they probably were. Uh, I just don't remember it that clearly. But Joe Layton was primarily the person who selected me to play the part. And I went to the theater one night with Bob 
and I felt someone poke me on the shoulder and I turned around and it was Julie Stein. And he said, hey kid, he said, I'm happy you're gonna be in my show. And he said, I picked out one of my trunk songs I'm gonna give you that I wrote for Fred Astaire. It's called, uh, oh, I don't know, it's called Baby, I Need You, ba I don't know what the hell the lyrics are, but it doesn't matter. I picked that song because once I saw your audition, I'm gonna put it in the show. And it was called, uh, I Won't Let You Get Away. Uh, and it's an okay song, it's not a great song. I'm sorry, Julie, it's not a great song, but it's a good song. And so that was my meeting with Julie Stein and I became very close to Julie Stein and he used to have me uh, sing some of his songs for backers, uh, auditions and things. So I was very proud of having him on my side. I know when he did uh, Treasure Island, he called me up and said, hey Leroy, can you sing like a kid? I said, sure, Julie. He said, I don't wanna put up with a kid and you come in, you sing like a little boy, you're gonna sing the little boy in uh, Treasure Island. I said, right, Julie. So I, I just, uh, I loved him. I loved Julie Stein so much. But Carol Channing, first day of rehearsal, I wore a jacket and a tie to rehearsal. But in Covington, Kentucky, my senior year at the prom, we always went to the Beverly Hills nightclub in Covington, Kentucky, and the headliners, and the star headliner was Carol Channing. So we saved our money all year for the prom. And after the prom, we all went to the Beverly Hills Country Club to see the, and that was a big deal. And Carol Channing did her act. And at the end, she sang Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend. And she threw out these rhinestone bracelets that had her name written on the clasp. And I caught two of them. So I had them. So my first day of rehearsal, I brought one to rehearsal. And I said, Miss Channing, I saw you at the Beverly Hills Country Club. I held up the bracelet, she said, oh my goodness. And she had us photographed holding, I still got the photograph, I was going, holding up the bracelet. So that was my connection with Carol. And we got into rehearsal and she liked me and her husband liked me. And so when we got ready to go on tour, we were gonna go on tour for a year and everything was gonna be about the press because she did a lot of press and her husband was in, you know, did a lot of uh, producing and advertising stuff. He was a, a producer on the uh, George Burns, Gracie Allen show uh, with, for Carnation Milk. So he was an avenue was a producer there. So, you know, he was very good at all that stuff. And George Burns kind of put Carol and him together and that's how they got married. So Charles handled all of the press and he, handled Carol's career. He was her manager, period. So when we were photographed so much, we were getting on the bus to go on tour. Of course, Carol didn't get on the bus. She rode in a limousine to go to the airport. It was the cast who rode the bus, but they pretended she was getting on the bus and she had on a full length white mink coat. And I had on my seal fur coat. Charles said, get Leroy over here. I let him help Carol on the bus because we both had on these big fur coats. So I was like kind of pulled into that press thing with her and uh, they liked me and we went out socially while we were on tour and uh, uh, Peter Palmer who was the leading man didn't get a lot of press because Carol did everything and when he got to Chicago he hired a press agent and they put an article in the paper and he kind of complained about how tough it was you know being Carol Channing's leading man because you never got press so that infuriated Charles Lowe. Oh. And Charles said, well, from now on, Peter Palmer is not the leading man of Lorelei. It's Leroy Reams. And if she needs someone to go with her uh, to do press, that's gonna be Leroy. So I, ex I went out with them on these things. And after the show, they would always have the critic from the 
upcoming show, come in to see the show. And then we would go out with him and have dinner. And oh. many times the critics were gay and I was eye candy. So we would go out and we would sit and we would go into our act. And of course, Charles kept a record of all the critics and what they said. And I, know, I remember when he gave Carol an apple, she said, Charles, what's this apple for? He said, well, this critic, his name is da 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 da. He said he liked apples and it's kind of apple he liked. Now you give it to him. And Carol was like, oh, I brought you your favorite apple. Of course, they go, oh, so we always got good reviews because of this, you know, the things that they did press wise, it was a lesson to be learned. Yeah. And, uh, so I learned a lot being in the company of Carol Channing. And of course, then later, uh, I got a call and the phone said, hello, Leroy, it's Carol. Carol Channing, like I did, she said, I'm gonna do a revival, darling, of Hello, Dolly, and I want you to play Cornelius Hackle, but you know, Lucia Victor, the director, and Jerry Herman don't know you, dear, but don't matter, you've got the part. And indeed, I did. And that began my association with them. And uh, so, you know, Carol was a, a huge influence in my life and kept me working a lot, and Charles Lowe. Yeah. So, you know, I had wonderful stories about the generosity. And I mean, boy, when you walk on stage with her, you better give 110% because that's what she does. She walks out and she, and also Lauren Bacall, they don't miss shows. Betty never missed a show. And when I was with Carol during the years, she did miss a couple shows, but very few. And it was only because she was really, really ill and couldn't talk. And, but she only missed uh, all those years of doing Hello, Dolly! with her, I think a total of maybe four performances is all she ever missed. So uh, they were war horses. But boy, you step on the stage, you better be up to par. You can't mark it because you'll be told. And that's the, I mean, that's the way that I grew up in the theater. You had to be dead or near it if you didn't go on the stage that night. It's a whole different way now. People have sick days and, you know, they take off. In the old days, we didn't do that. It, you did the show, you did the show. And uh, so anyway, uh, I'm trying to think of another. I have tons and tons of stories for you, Charles. I'm trying to think of another one with, uh, with Carol Chan. And uh, she chose me to be her director for her last revival. She was then 76 years old when she did the last revival of Hello, Dolly. And uh, it was incredible. And she did, again, a year's tour of it before she came back to Broadway. So, you know, she had the stamina. And of course, she lived to be, I think, like 96 years old. So she, she lived a long time. So when you were in her Hello, Dolly! revival, not the one you directed, but the one you played Cornelius, did you find that it was sort of much the same as the original, or did you think it was different? Well, Lucia Victor directed it, and she was Gower Champion's production stage manager. And uh, she did the show the way Gower did it, which is the way I learned it. Uh, Lucia did give me direction, but she allowed me to bring what I wanted into the character. She was collaborative. I wasn't told, well, Charles Nelson Riley did this and that, 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 and you take a beat here and you, no, 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 no. Uh, she worked as a director and she took my input as Cornelius and uh, I, I was appreciative of that. So I found 
my own way of playing Cornelius Hackle. But it was all staged exactly the way the Gower Champion staged it, which is the best way. It's the Gower Champion version. And for my taste, it's the best version, especially with the staging. When I directed it, by the way, I changed some things. Uh, I went more into the romance of the piece, and I went more into the fact of her being a matchmaker. So in dancing, at the end, when they all dance on, uh, Cornelius and Mrs. Molloy went off, but then uh, Barnaby went off too, and little Minnie Faye danced around and went off by herself. So when I do it, I make it more obvious that you see Dolly putting Cornelius and Mrs. Molloy together, and they go off, and then Barnaby stays on stage, and when Minnie Faye dances around, Dolly looks at Barnaby, and she goes, and Barnaby pulls Minnie Faye off. So they're a couple. So she's coupling people up. So you see her matchmaking. And so then when she's alone, she realizes, I've made a match for everybody but myself. Ephraim, let me go. It's been long enough, Ephraim, I want to rejoin the human race. So I thought it was much, it was more into the romantic part of the story. The Thornton Wilder message is what I went after. And then I restaged So Long Deary. I made it much sexier because I thought of it as being at, at the turn of the century, a woman could not vote. She did not have the right to vote. And she basically became chattel with her husband. The men were in charge. The women weren't in politics. Uh, and the only thing a woman had to offer to get her way was her sexuality. And that's how she manipulated men to get what they wanted. So I wanted to bring that out in the piece. So in the, in the courtroom scene, when Van der Gelder says, I wouldn't marry you, Dolly Levi, if you're the last person on earth. And she, oh, and in essence, you know, you don't want to marry me? Well, guess what, Horace? I don't want to marry you. But what I've got is so good that you can't have in essence. So wave your little hand and whisper, so long, dearie. You're not going to see me anymore. But what I've got is so good, but you can't have it. So that's the way I staged the number. I made it sexier. It was like women's liberation. So when she said, I'm going to learn to dance and drink and smoke a cigarette, I'm going to get as far away from Yonkers as a girl can get. And it's also her screaming her independence. So it makes the show more powerful in the message. That's what I did as the director. And on that revival night, March Champion was my date and Bob. The three of us went together. And when she saw that ending on uh, dancing, she turned and she said, brilliant. And then when she saw So Long, Dearie, and she said, you fixed it. She said, Gower never had time to fix that number. She said, but you did work. You made it work. And, I, and she, we went on theater talk together and she gave me credit for that. So I have that in, on tape of March Champions saying what a good job I did directing. But I kept the Gower Champion staging. Uh, I kept the Gower Champion version. I just added more of the romance. I, I, that was important to me and also more focus on the speeches of Thornton Wilder. Uh, I, I was important for me to bring that in. And I felt that the revival, although Bette Miller was wonderful and it was lovely seeing the show again, the focus was somehow lost and 
the romance of the supporting characters was cut out because they had Barnaby and Minnie Fay being attracted to each other right away, which is not the way it would be. Because these are two guys who, Barnaby, as you know, uh, what is it, 16 years old or whatever, and, and, and uh, Cornelius is a 33-year-old virgin. They've never been around women. They, don't, they wouldn't do that. They would be like this. And if, you have to see that happening. You have to see Dolly making that happen. You have to see the attraction. You have to see Cornelius and Mrs. Malloy falling in love. When, when he says, uh, when Cornelius says, you know, to uh, uh, Mrs. Malloy in that speech, he said, you know, and you have such, and he looks at her and you see him falling in love with her. I mean, you know, I can't remember the line now, but it was a line where, everybody said, I mean, your hat, your hat. But it's what he really is saying it to her because you have to watch him fall in love and you have to watch her looking at him. And that's, that's what the show is all about. I wish I could have directed the revival, but I think at that time they didn't want anyone originated with the original production because they wanted to do their own take on it. And I understand that, but at the same time, we knew so much of that thing. You can still adjust it. It's like taking a dress and fitting it on a new actress. You put the dress on, but it takes a little nips and tucks to make it fit them. That's what you do, but don't change the style of the dress, you know. And that's the way I feel about a lot of revivals. Now, I'm all for getting a whole new perspective of it if it works. But if it doesn't, if it ain't broke, then don't fix it. And I have found that uh, with a lot of shows, uh, it's good to see the original concept. And although they always want to do something different, it doesn't always work. Sometimes it does. And sometimes it doesn't. And I think, uh, like with Oklahoma, watching Agnes DeMille's original choreography, it's not dated. It's of the period when it was done. And if it's done correctly, and the dancers understand the style, it's then again art. Yeah. And uh, I, 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 I like that. I like the feeling of that. I don't, it's like when actors go into shows, uh, and I've replaced twice. And it wasn't easy either time because uh, I didn't get to put my input. They just wanted me to do it the way the other people did it. And that's counterproductive. That's, you know, we don't, we have to create. We don't compete. Don't compete with people, Charles. Create. Don't go in saying, oh, that has nothing to do with them. It's the difference between apples and oranges. You go in being whatever it is that you are and show them what that is, what you do, and then they'll see it. I know when... This great advice from Mr. Ream seems like a good place to end for today. Listeners, thank you so much for tuning in, and make sure to tune back in this weekend for part two of this wonderful interview. Thank you.